If you are new or visiting, um, I want to add my welcome to the welcome you've already received today. Uh, my name is Chad Kinson. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to, to open God's Word with you. We're continuing forward today in a series we started a few weeks ago on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 7. It's the first and most well-known sermon uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus. And uh, if you're familiar with any passage of Scripture, if you don't have a lot of time in the Bible, you're probably familiar with some of the passages mentioned here. And uh, we're excited to roll forward with it. The whole Sermon on the Mount, the whole point of these two chapters when Jesus is unfolding for us, is what does life in the kingdom look like? He is ushering in the kingdom of God. The rule and the reign of God has broken in to our present time. And now he's saying, what does it look like? What, what, what would the rule and the reign of God look like in your life in real time? That, that's what this whole sermon is about. Jesus is training all who would follow him and how their lives will look and how their lives will change under his leadership, right? And so kind of bottom line in a, in a statement, the Sermon on the Mount is Christianity 101. Like this is discipleship, ground level, boots on the ground. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And so today in the passage that was read just a moment ago, we're going to be addressing the issue of anger. Jesus is going to address us on the issue of anger and reconciliation. Well, this week I had a friend recommend to me an article that came from Time Magazine titled, America's anger is out of control. America's anger is out of control. That's a newsflash to you, I know. Um, but the opening lines of this article were too great to bypass, and so I want to read them to you. Uh, again, Time Magazine, article on anger, says this. The easiest thing you will do all day is get ticked off at something. And we all agree, right? Someone cuts you off in traffic, ticked off. Guy in front of you at Starbucks needs his entire order remade because his mocha half-calf double frap had the wrong freaking, I love the two Gs there, it's wonderful, had the wrong freaking number of espresso shots in it, even though you know full well you can't taste the bloody difference. Exceedingly ticked off. <laughs> Got a witness here. We're all that way, though, and that's the problem. A's, anger is the lazy person's emotion. It's quick, it's binary, and it's delicious. And more and more, we are gorging on it. Okay, this is Time Magazine, right? Like, this is not, you know, your daily bread, devotional chicken soup for your soul. Like, this has no Christian overtones. This is just Time Magazine serving it to you straight. Like, this is us. The article goes on, and he talks about how you can do a simple Google search and find outrage all over the place on just about anything. He said, you can Google dancers outraged, fishermen outraged, my personal favorite, knitters outraged. Uh, there was a group of knitters who have this whole website of outrage because they wanted to have a knitting Olympics, and the Olympic committee said you can't use Olympics in the title for your event, and thus, outrage. But it's no surprise, right, that we live in a culture of outrage. Of course we do. There's plenty of things going on all around us all the time that ought to get a rise out of us. Racial injustice, all kinds of abuse, cycles of poverty, bullying, labor and sex trafficking. This is just to name a few things. There's a long list of things that ought to rightly inflame us and burden us. But here's what I know about my life, and I don't know that I'm far too different than any of you. Very often, we're unable to experience any of 
the right kind of anger with sobriety and give a response proportionate to those problems because we spend so much time simmering over all kinds of people and all kinds of things that only so much as bother our preferences and comforts. We have mixed uses of anger. And so when you combine the fact that we live in a time where we have more options and more amenities available to us for anything that we might want at any time, you combine that with the fact that we live in a cultural moment that celebrates expressed individualism, you do you, you define you, and then you mix that with a nice cocktail of the black abyss of social media as a platform to express anything you want at any time, the only necessary outcome of all of that is outrage. It's outrage, right? The natural outcome of all of this is outrage because the second someone doesn't affirm you in the way you've determined to identify yourself or someone poses a threat to you living your best life now and you have an outlet to air out your disgust with a host of people that are just waiting at their keyboards to engage you and tell you that you're right on a public platform, the only outcome of this scenario is outrage. This is the common air that we breathe. And this is the space, this is the moment in which Jesus speaks to us these words and he's trying to form us in a different direction. When you hear Jesus speak today from this text, he's the only sober one in the room, right? He's trying to form us in a different direction. He's trying to, to teach us to see each other different and interact with our world in a different way. And so as we pick up today, we're doing so right where we left off last week. Jesus said, Last week in the text we look at that was read on the front end of where we're going to pick up today, he said some shocking things about the righteousness and the required righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said that I have not come to relax any of God's commands, but instead I've come to show them what they really mean. I've come to show how strong they really are. We said last week that when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount and when you have the motion of what you're reading and you say, this is impossible, you're reading it right. When you have that response to what he's saying and you feel yourself bucking, you're reading it right. But then Jesus says in verse 17 from last week, I've not come to abolish the law, but here's where our hearts begin to rise again. But I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to complete it, show its greater sense. And so it's not by our efforts or our work that God is pleased with us. Hear that today. It's not by your effort or your work that God is pleased with you, but it's by the effort and the work of King Jesus that he's pleased with you. To receive his kingdom, you don't need to change your life or clean yourself up. You could never do so, right? In order to receive the approval of God the Father and the righteousness of the kingdom, it's a gift given. But rest assured that once you do enter the kingdom and you come under the royal power of God, you don't need to change to get his royal power, but when you come underneath it, it will change you. It, it will change you. It has to change you. When you experience the forgiveness of God Almighty, you can't help but yourself become more forgiving. When you experience the mercy, the tender mercy, the eyes wide open kind of mercy of God, you can't help but yourself become more merciful. It has to happen. You he invites you to his kingdom just as you are, <laughs> but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. 
He sees you eyes wide open, no strings attached, throwing nothing under the rug. Come on in. I see you. I know you. But I love you too much to leave you in your current condition. So now in our text today, Jesus is going to start unpacking for us some of the change he intends to bring to our life. And there's going to be six statements that we'll cover over the next several weeks of the change he intends to bring in the, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, in following him. And the way he's going to do it is by exposing and challenging the man-made religion of his day. And I would dare say it's the same in our day as well. And so as, as this pastor, we're going to ask and answer three questions. The first question is, what is being challenged? What is Jesus challenging? The second question, what does this now look like? And the last question, what do I do? What is he challenging? What does this now look like? And what do I do? The first question, what's being challenged? Look back at 21. It says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And everyone who murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so Jesus is addressing the popular level teaching in his day around the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That's the command. And receiving judgment is the punishment for anyone who breaks the command. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were teaching very simply that the way you would fulfill the sixth commandment is by not killing someone. Seems simple enough, right? Profound. Thank you, pastor, right? By not killing someone. You are without guilt before God and man so long as you literally don't destroy someone else's life. The Pharisees taught and understood this law down to the letter. Down to the letter, right? As long as around you, everyone stays alive as far as your responsibility can manage it, you're free. But the problem is they ultimately end up relaxing this command, diminishing this command, making light of this command, because though they understood its letter, the exact words, they bypassed its heart and its intent. Here's what I mean. They would have known, for example, that when God says in another command, do not steal, he certainly means don't take possessions that aren't yours. They would have known that. But what he also meant by do not steal is be generous. Like necessarily do not steal doesn't just mean you're clean so long as you only have your stuff and not someone else's. Not to steal also meant to equally command the positive, be generous. This is why all over the Old Testament you'll see God rebuking Israel when they're not sharing their stuff with the poor and not sharing their blessings with those who need it. He says, why are you robbing me and why are you robbing the poor? Not being generous was considered by God as robbery. Not just taking someone else's stuff, but not being generous, right? So he prohibits the negative, but wrapped up within that, the heart of the law equally commands the positive. So do you see it? It's no wonder the law was reduced in their minds because all of us reduce the law in our minds. All of us want to know what's the lowest common denominator for me to do what I want and get as much life as I want without being guilty based on technicality. How can I get away with as much as possible and still maintain my dignity? This happens at my house all the time with my daughters, right? If you have kids, you know this. So my seven-year-old loves to pick on my five-year-old, loves it. She'll see her slapping her, hitting her, pinching her, breathing on her, doing all sorts of crazy things. Hey, Liv, stop touching Scarlet. So she hears the letter of the law, right? Then the next thing she does is she scoots as close as she possibly can to Scarlet and then stares in her face at an uncomfortable distance. 
And then Scarlet calls out, Dad. And then Liv goes, what well, am I doing anything? Okay, you've obeyed the letter of the law, but you're annoying your sister. The letter of the law, don't touch her anymore, also assumes the heart of the law, which is treat your sister with kindness and respect. You see it, right? This is how all of us do this. And this is happening with the law of God. Jesus is coming in to correct and call out those, how they would follow him and what the heart of the law means. So look at 22 and see how Jesus reinterprets the sixth command. So you've heard it said, don't kill anybody. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. The same judgment. So all of a sudden, Jesus raises the command to see it for what it really is. At first reading, nearly everyone reads this and feels the freedom to breeze right on by. I'm good. I haven't killed anybody. I'm clean, right? Everyone feels the freedom to breeze right on by. Congratulations, you haven't killed anybody. That's what you wanted to hear today, right? But then you realize the heart of this command is even to resist the emotional seedbed from where murder grows. Now, all of a sudden, every one of us are called into account. Because the, the deal with the sixth command, it's not just about murder. The whole purpose of the sixth command, it's about the dignity, the value, and the worth of every person made in the image of God. Regardless of gender, regardless of skin color, regardless of nationality, regardless if you're a local or if you're a refugee, rich or poor, educated or not, young or old, disabled or privileged, the image of God does not play favorites. It's placed on all people across all time, across all places equally. This is why as Christians, we ought to mourn. It absolutely ought to rip us to shreds when innocent life is taken. It ought to rip us to shreds, whether it's abortion or shootings, whether they happen in churches or mosques or nightclubs. It ought to shred us. And why? Because we recognize there the dignity of those human beings is directly connected to the dignity of their creator. They have dignity. All of us have dignity. All humanity bears dignity because it's connected to and flows from the dignity of the one who gave us breath. The reason that murder is such a horror is because it's an assault on one who bears the image of God and therefore it's an attack on an assault on God himself. It is someone putting themselves in the place of God to be the authority over their worth and over their final breath. It's a horror. So this is why Jesus rightly interprets the law for us by taking us beneath the surface to show us that even when we flirt, even the flirtation of the first fruits of murder with anger in our hearts makes us liable. We're at least liable of the same judgment. At least liable of the same judgment. Now, I know that there's objections in the room, right? Because you feel pressed. <laughs> Whenever you feel pressed, you want to object. You want to find loopholes. Yeah, but what about righteous anger? Like, isn't there the kind of anger that's good and right to have? Didn't Jesus even get angry? So like, there's so, so what we're doing with that question is we're trying to, yep, yeah, I can't lose all of it. Like, tell me how much of anger I can still hold on to. But you're right. Like, there is righteous anger. And Jesus did get angry, and he was aroused when he was trying to protect something precious and vulnerable with the religious system of his day oppressing the poor. 
in the way that they had to buy money, that, buy with money that they didn't have, sacrifices to be made right with God. They turned religion into a marketplace. This enraged Jesus. And so, yes, there's a righteous kind of anger when you're aroused to protect something precious and vulnerable. This is the kind of anger a parent feels when their child is being threatened. This is the kind of anger that is right and good for us to experience in the face of the injustice of racism or the injustice of sex trafficking. It ought to inflame us. When you see those things, when you come in contact, you ought to feel something unsettling in you and want to do something about it. But if we're honest, this kind of righteous anger is not the anger that you and I are grappling with on a day-to-day. And even when we do encounter righteous anger, (laughs) because we're so busy with other kinds of non-righteous anger, we rarely express righteous anger in righteous ways. So just because you're feeling the right stuff doesn't mean you express it in the right way, right? The majority of the time, our anger is the result of someone applying pressure in our life to an insecurity that we already know we have. And so we want to buck under that with rage. Most of the time we experience anger when we don't get treated with the respect we feel we deserve from a coworker or a boss or a child or a spouse. We get angry when we're afraid of losing something that makes us feel safe. So the fear of losing a job or a reputation or a relationship, we get angry, we get, we get fearful, and so we lash out, even if it's just internally. We get angry when someone disagrees with us because if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing, disagreeing with my identity and my worth as a person, so now I need to defend myself and my identity and my, right? We get angry. We get angry when we don't get what we want. My 18-month-old son gets angry all the time. He doesn't get what he wants. We are no different. I am no different than my 18-month-old son. I've just figured out how to make it more reasonably presentable, right? But it's no different. So now our second question. If you're you're tracking with this, you're feeling pressed because you're so familiar with rage. You're so familiar with rage that we don't know what to do without it. And it's become like a drug to us. Me too. So now you're going, so what is it supposed to look like? If If I'm supposed to be angry, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what to do without this chemical rush. So look back at 22 and Jesus is going to address a couple of kinds of anger to warn us against. He says this, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I love that Jesus goes here. (laughs) I love it in a painful way because it's painful because it's as if he knows what's in us. It's as if he anticipates how we're listening to him. If you're like me, to this point in working through my study this week, I thought to myself, well, I'm good. I'm not angry with anybody. Like, I'm not angry with anybody. I mean, there's that one guy I'm frustrated with, but I'm not angry with anybody. I mean, there's those couple of guys that upset, but I'm not angry with anybody. I mean, there's that guy that gets on my nerves and I can't stand the sight of him, but I'm not angry with anybody. And I found myself, I literally found myself like journaling through these thoughts this week in my study. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh. Like, consider the extent that we'll go to justify ourselves and cover over what we know is guilty, but like redefine it or throw another word on it that we're more comfortable with so it's not the thing that's actually accusable. Consider the extent we'll go to cover ourselves. 
Jesus anticipates this response and calls out two forms of anger in this verse that at first glance don't seem like much, but I want to show you there's much to be made of them. The first one, he says, if anyone insults his brother. Some of your translations might retain the Aramaic word raka. If anyone says raka to his brother. Now, insult is actually a fair translation to English of the word raka, but it hardly communicates the depth of this word. We don't have a word like this in English. The word raka is a derogatory word meaning you nobody. It is actually like a disposition toward a person that suggests you're a non-person to me, right? So raka is a kind of internal anger. It's not the kind that blows up and expresses itself. It's an internal anger that festers inside of us. This is the kind of anger, you wouldn't say this to somebody because it wouldn't make sense, but this is the way you treat somebody you're angry with. It's the way you feel about them. Raka is an attitude of indifference. I don't care what you do. I don't care what happens to you. Raka. You may be able to keep up appearances on the outside. I'm, going, I'm doing fine. Life is going well. I'm cool with everybody. On the inside, you're a wreck because you have raka in your heart saying over someone, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. This one stings because this one catches most of us in the room because you can still maintain religious appearances and have raka in your heart. The reason Jesus calls this out is because sure you haven't taken someone's life physically, but this kind of anger, you've ended them in your heart, you've written them out of the script of your life, and you've refused to honor their dignity and their personhood because you've said, you have no longer part of my life, right? Raka. So Jesus calls this out (laughs) because this is not the kind of righteousness he's bringing with his kingdom. Now, the second kind of anger, he says, if anyone says, you fool, you fool. The, the Greek word for fool there is moros, where we get our word moron or idiot, right? So whereas raka is an internalized kind of anger that festers, you fool, moros is the kind of anger that lashes out and expresses itself. This is telling someone off. This is giving someone a piece of your mind, verbal slander, belittling someone with your words, tearing down someone else's reputation with your words about them. You fool. Pastor Tim Keller explains it this way. This is something you say to someone. So to murder someone also means to murder them in their confidence about themselves. Because when you call someone a moron or any other name that would suggest the same, the only reason you do that is because you hope they'll believe you. And when you get them to believe that, you've put a dagger in a part of their heart that no surgeon can remove. And all of us bear wounds like that. To murder somebody is to murder their reputation. It's also to murder their confidence in themselves. You fool. Okay, so now we're all here, and none of us get to negotiate this, right? None of us get to negotiate this. But I want to remind you, as you hear these words from Jesus, and now you're judged under them, because we all probably feel we're there, I want to remind you, it's not like Jesus is giving this teaching because he's on a witch hunt in your life and trying to back you into a corner. Like, that's not why he's being so precise with this. He's calling you forward with this kind of teaching because these things lead to death, don't they? Like, no one with moros or raka in their heart is at peace. Just on a practical level, you walk around with this kind of festering, simmering resentment, you're not at peace. And yet he's bringing a kingdom of shalom 
He's the prince of peace. So these things have to be addressed. Okay. But if you're like me, there's also another place of honesty underneath this because you can at least go, okay, Jesus, you got me. I'm not innocent. Like, fair accusations, I get it. But you still don't feel the weight of this like it's a big deal because in the places where you're angry, if you're angry, you typically are angry because you feel justified about being angry. So you go, okay, Jesus, you got me, but, but he did some stuff. She did some stuff. She said some stuff. Stuff's been said to me, done to me, thrown around on me. Like, I feel justified in this tension. You can admit guilt, but you say, yeah, I get it. I may have said some stuff I shouldn't have. I may have felt some stuff I shouldn't have. But how am I supposed to just let go of that after what they did? Like you still feel a little justified even though the words of Jesus resonate. And if that's where you land, if that's where you are, you're precisely at the place where Jesus is trying to take us. Like you're precisely now at the place where you might be able to hear him. Because at the end of the day, this teaching isn't so much about you getting your understanding of murder right. And this teaching isn't so much about you getting your anger issues in order. This is primarily a gospel issue. Here's what I mean by this. Right at the place you feel justified in your anger, right there, Jesus is trying to take you by the chin and lift your head and say, listen, listen. So so work with me for a second. Consider your own sin. Consider your sin, right? The places in your life where you have rejected the authority of God, places in your life where you've done life on your own terms, regardless of what God says, and in those places, God the holy judge could have rightly responded in two ways to your rebellion. God could rightly respond to your rebellion against his authority on the one hand with raka. He could raka you for the ways that you have committed high treason against his majesty, he could write you off and in his heart cut you off from his presence forever. He could throw raka on you and be right and justified in doing so. On the other hand, he would be well within his rights to moros you, to verbally give you a hearing and a sentence of his wrath from the ways that you have belittled him by robbing him of the glory he deserves for your very breath. He could let you hear about it. And he would be right in doing so because of his authority. And yet, here's what's so crazy about God. He does neither of those things. He does neither of those things. Instead, what he does is he sends his son and he puts him forward in our place so that on the cross, God's love and God's justice meet. Jesus received the expressed anger of God in being suspended on the cross in the place of a fool, absorbing the wrath of God for our sin. And he received the raka of God. He was forsaken there and cut off in our place. And so now for all who would look to Jesus because of his finished work, the only thing we know from God is not moros, it's not raka, but it's his reconciling voice. He reconciles himself to us. And so when you feel justified in your anger and you're drawn to fester some resentment in your heart over wrongdoing of another, in that moment, consider God's response to you. Consider God's eyes wide open on you. And this is the righteousness 
that releases you from your sins. This is the righteousness that he's forming in you to offer others in the same way. And just a quick side note, because I know that we're lots of different places in the room hearing this. There's some of you that consider releasing someone because of this teaching, and it feels impossible. Because it feels like to release them is to say about what they've done or what they've said as though it's okay. Releasing someone, reconciling with someone, is not saying that what they did was okay. Reconciling with someone and releasing in this way says, I no longer hold this over you. I no longer count this against you. I am not your judge, and I release you to him. That, that's what it is to reconcile here. And then you trust God to give a merciful, kind, just verdict. So now, last question, we'll land this plane. What do I do? <laughs> what do I do with all of this? Look back at verses 23 through 26, and we'll land this thing. So here's what Jesus says you do. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before you go to the altar. Leave your gift, he says. First go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are still walking with him along the way, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. For truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus answers the question, what do we do here, really clearly. Like so clearly, it, it needs hardly any explanation. He says, before you come and you offer your worship and your prayers to God, before you come to receive communion, listen, we're on, we're on the other side of the cross and resurrection. So where they were offering sacrifices, we come to receive the sacrifice that was made, right? Before you come to communion, he says, and receive the sacrifice God's given for you, if all of a sudden you go, oh yeah, someone has something against me, or I have something in my heart against my brother, he says at that moment, leave your offering, go be reconciled, go deal with it, and then come back and receive communion and worship. This is what he says. You say, wow, sounds really great. That also sounds really radical and like a logistical nightmare, right? That's a logistic, like that, if I'm going to actually follow you here, like that's going to mean like I got some gas money I got to think about. I got some mileage. I got, I got some time management I got to consider. Like what is, okay, that sounds really radical. Like to follow Jesus here, that sounds really radical. It does. It does because no one else talks like this. <laughs> no one else offers a kingdom like this. So it, it does sound radical, but you know what else sounds radical? Leaving your father's side to go be reconciled with people who have for their whole life belittled you, not believed you, and mocked you, and then to go suffer judgment in their place so that they would never know separation, but only acceptance. That also sounds pretty radical in all the right ways. In all the right ways. You see, it's really hard to come to the table of the one who cancels all wrongdoing. Hear that. When you come to this table, it is coming to the one who cancels all wrongdoing. It's really hard to come to this table when at the same time, you're harboring wrongdoing in your heart toward another or committed against another. 
God, I'm celebrating the fact that my wrongdoing is canceled, but that guy, whatever he gets, he gets. You see, to take this bread and this cup, to offer your prayers for your own peace while you're making enmity between another brother, it's, it's hypocritical. It's both sides of your mouth. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, let's have our heads and our hearts agree. Let's have the confession of our lips and the affections of our heart come together. A couple of brief caveats as we land today. Some of you might be hearing this and you're thinking, okay, but I'm, I'm a victim of some abuse. And I've got all kinds of things that rise up in me and that trigger in me because of the things done to me, said to me. Man, I just want to say I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you've been willing to process this up to now. And when Jesus speaks this to you, this is not a directive for you to go back into harm's way. He's not shaming you here. What this does mean, though, is that you would do well to find someone close to you that you trust, that's safe, and walk these, walk these things into the light, walk these emotions, walk this rage into the light, and beg God to heal your heart. He wants to. He wants to. He knows what it's like to be abused. Jesus knows. And he stands on the other side victorious. There's others of you here today, and you're going, yeah, but the person that I need to reconcile with won't have any of it. They will not receive a phone call from me. They will not receive a meeting from me. The last thing they'd be willing to do today is receive an invite to coffee. Okay? That scenario's out there. Scripture speaks to that too. Scripture speaks to that too. And don't just assume you're in that place without having tried, right? Romans 12, 17 and 18 says this, repay no one evil for evil, but, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone, 18, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, on your pursuit of reconciliation, what? Live peaceably with all, live peaceably with all people. Jesus is reordering a kind of kingdom, and here's why. Because he says, the world will know you're my disciples, how? By not murdering one another and just settling for anger with each other? No. The world will know you're my disciples by the way you love, even to extreme measures, one another, right? You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit murder, forever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before you go to the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and then come to offer your gift. Let's stand together.